Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources in veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better. Hi, welcome to Hire the Smile, our podcast on all things related to human resources in the veterinary profession. As always, I'm Mike Pownall, and as always, I am joined by Katie Arline. Good morning, Katie. How are you? Good morning, Mike. I'm doing quite well, thanks. So as we leave 2021 and the new variant is spreading like wildfire, it feels a lot like the end of 2020, which just fills me with such joy and (laughs) fond thoughts of the holiday season. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, I think at least this holiday season is a little less bleak than the last one was, but still it's sort of, it's all very tiring at this point. It is. And, but just because it is getting to the end of the year, we thought we would do a review of 2021 because as much as we want to put the year behind us, both Katie and I were talking, as we're preparing for a podcast, you, this is sort of like behind the scenes, how it works. About a couple of days before we're recording, it's like, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? But I mean, I'm being slightly joking. But usually there's a theme or something has happened, uh, a situation with uh, a client, a situation in my own practice, something that we have read about the industry. It was like, you know what, that's something really important. Let's talk about it. And then Katie and I will go off and do some research and find articles, uh, things relevant to the subject. But as we go on in the year, as I'm reading the newspaper, reading the newspaper, I haven't read a newspaper forever. As I'm reading the newspaper online or the news online, all of a sudden you're thinking of an article or a research uh, paper that we read earlier in the year or a subject that really resonates. And I think both of us, uh, we sort of selected about five each of articles or subjects that really resonated and that I keep on coming back to uh, personally. There's a few of them that fundamentally changed how I think about things. Mm-hmm. And so we just thought we would review back to the articles, have a link to the podcast where it's from. So if you want to know more about it or, you know, get more in depth, you can go to it. We're not going to really do the nth degree this time. Already, Katie? Ready to roll. Go back to look at 2021. All right. So, you know, if there is uh, a theme of the year and a theme that we caught upon pretty early in the year, when we uh, did a podcast that was released on February 9th called Redefining Burnout. And it was an article that I came across that was about Christina Maslach. She is a researcher, professor emeritus, professor of psychology at the University of California in Berkeley. And she has done, uh, like she is the person when we talk about burnout. 
And I was driving home somewhere and I was listening to an, a Harvard Business Review podcast and it was with her and I was listening to her and I was like, oh, so this is where all this research comes from. And this is like the goddess of burnout. And I right away went home and just started looking up her articles. And this article that we came to uh, was from a presentation she did for a group and they sort of transcribed it. But I think what Katie and I uh, resonated, I won't speak for you, but what resonated for me is that there are five factors related to burnout, but we always think that burnout is the person. They're not resilient. They're not tough enough. You talk to any vet practice owner, inevitably the conversation will come up. Oh, the students today or the new grads today, Mm. they're just not tough enough back in my day. And then it's probably every generation going back to as soon as humankind could actually speak and communicate. It was like, oh, oh, those Neanderthals, you know, (laughs) or whatever. They just, I mean, that's just inevitable. But yeah, so it really, it becomes a person job mix. And a lot of the factors are jobs. And there's a mismatch between people and these five factors. And it really uh, opened up my eyes on the workplace that we create contributes to burnout. One of the examples that she says is that, we're always saying to people like, oh, you need to take a break from work. Why don't you take a couple of days off or take an extra day vacation? And it's sort of like we're acknowledging that the workplace sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the way to get away from it is to take time away from work. And I think uh, burnout this year in this vet profession has just been astronomical. In a recent podcast, we were talking about people, uh, veterinary professionals, even professionals. This is a research presented by the AVMA based on a survey done by AHA. And like over 26% of RVTs or vet assistants have quit their jobs at a higher rate than human nurses. And I think it was 21% of veterinarians have quit their jobs, Mm -hmm. which is about 5% over human physicians. So this pandemic has hurt our frontline healthcare workers for sure, but it seems to have really affected our vet professionals. And it's just, we have crappy work environments, it seems. Yeah. And I think something, you know, you said something that I just want to kind of hammer home a little bit is, you know, that the classic thought, you know, if somebody's too stressed or in our estimation or their estimation, they're too stressed and we give them that time off, the whole premise is that's fine. Like you said, it's like, okay, well, we're acknowledging that the workplace is a stressful place. But then when they come back, it's exactly the same place. Yeah. So like, how is that going to be any different when they come back? And they might, you know, in the case of a lot of veterinarians that I know, they're going to feel guilty because they took time off and other people had to cover for them or make up their time. So I think that's a really good indication that there's a fundamental sort of misunderstanding about what burnout is and, and exactly how much the workplace contributes to individual burnout, regardless of the background of the person and how resilient they are. And honestly, I'm just trying to put myself in a position as, okay, the workplace is tough. You're not enjoying where you work at for whatever reasons. And then you're, all right, take a couple of extra days off. So you're taking a couple of extra days off, but really, are you taking time off or are you sitting and being apprehensive about going back to work again? Because the workplace is not really great for you. So, you know, fundamentally it goes, all right, let's fix the problem and not blame the people who are responding as people should to that situation. So, yes. Yeah, timely that we we got onto that beginning of the year because as we're seeing, and it's continuing, unfortunately, not just in the veterinary profession, but just generally in North America and to a certain degree in, in the EU and other places of the, you know, the great resignation and people leaving. So tying in with the subject of burnout, we recorded uh, together, then I did the second one, a two-parter 
with Dr. Tova Caldwell, who I am happy to say is an associate at my practice, but Tova did a, a master's at the University of Guelph on leadership. And her thesis and her master's is mindfulness in uh, the veterinary profession to prevent veterinary burnout. And her research was focused primarily on equine veterinarians, but related a lot towards, and you could be applied to any professional, it could be applied to anybody, but so it really applied to anybody in the vet profession. And, and Tova, over the two-part series, talked a lot about the, you know, what mindfulness is, which is, you know, in, in essence, being present in the moment, not reacting to uh, situations and just being focused and, and, you know, ultimately, I guess, at peace of, of where you are in the moment, being able to take in what's on around you. And she talked a lot about some of the pitfalls that veterinarians fall into in terms of, you know, having the career define who they are. Uh, being such people pleaser that we're pretty well giving up all our identity and our our, our validation of who we are as people uh, is how good we are as veterinarians, which uh, this, this is a very humbling profession. So if that's where your value is locked into, you're going to be constantly knocked back down. Mm-hmm. So it was fascinating. It was probably the podcast where we've gotten the most feedback from people because it really opened up a new perspective on how to handle employees veterinarians, anybody in the profession who is facing burnout. And she gave some really good tips on how to uh, adapt to it. So Mm -hmm. I think it it would, those are great, great podcasts. The thing that, that stood out for me was not necessarily the input that Tova had necessarily, but it was more, she quoted a study that I think, I believe was done out of the university of Guelph through the vet hospital, where they talked about how the more accessible veterinarians are to clients, the happier clients are, but then it's an inverse proportion to the mental health of the veterinarian. And that's just so, you know, everybody loves the veterinarian that texts back right away, or, you know, that you can text them at 10 o'clock and they text you right back. And, you know, we've seen young veterinarians who think that they need to be that person. And just to see, you know, like that drives down mental health of veterinarians. It's just such a a stark, you know, I feel like that should be a headline in a newspaper for the general public to read so that they understand. And it really, like for me, I used a new veterinarian for my horse and they're super responsive as far as texting goes. And they would text me outside of business hours and I would take care to not reply unless it was in business hours. Because I'm like, I don't want to (laughs) encourage this necessarily because I know what the consequences are. But, you know, as a client, it's something for sure you value that, but you just don't understand what the the impact it has on the professional that's sending you that information. Yeah. No, that was a great series. And so that was September 14th and October 12th, Mindfulness to Prevent Veterinary Burnout with Dr. Tova Caldwell. So talking about burnout and how it's our workplace that is often what's contributing to burnout. Uh, it's funny because we sort of did this independently of what are the subjects that we really are concerned about. Mm -hmm. And we both really gravitated towards this one. And there's four podcast episodes from this one. Uh, The first one, I'll continue on with myself, is from October 31st, Managing Toxic Employees. And this was actually one of our most popular podcasts of the year. And the article I found, it's better to avoid a toxic employee than hire a superstar. This is from Harvard Business Review, and it's not this year article, but I think it was really relevant this year. Mm-hmm. Basically, the thesis of this article based on research is that we all want to get 
superstar employees because we want high producers. They can do a lot, but we tend to, I would say, not acknowledge, not think it's important enough, not spend the time on of what do we do to the average employee who, you know, they could be great performers, but they're really toxic. They do damage. Mm -hmm. Uh, They go against company policies, some cases of sexual harassment, there's bad apples in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And basically, those people cost more money in a business than the extra value a superstar would bring. And so, you know, I sort of had to read this a couple of times ago, like, what exactly are they saying? And basically, it is, is yes, we all want superstars. And they do bring a lot of value to our business. They bring revenue, they bring clients, and they bring profitability. Uh, but there's those others that we tolerate. And I know you and I see in practices that we consult with and help manage that. There are often, I'm not saying blanket, but often there are some employees that you're like, why do you still have them around? Yeah. And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, they've always been like this. It's fine. Or like, (laughs) oh, why do you still have them around? And I I like this article because it's like, you realize how much this person is just bringing down all the best efforts of everybody else in your practice. And Yeah, it was a good one. And I think also it went over sort of, it's not always overtly toxic either. You know, you could have, these people could be like very productive and rule following people, but they can also tend towards really like jarring um, misalignment with that kind of thinking. And they can break the rules and, you know, they can sort of go the other way at the drop of a hat. So it was interesting to read about some of the definitions of toxic that they talked about, you know, the overconfident, the narcissist, um, self-centered. Uh, but it, it's interesting because it's the toxic employee isn't necessarily the one that comes in and, you know, is 15 minutes late and then bad the boss for half the day. Uh, it can be a little more subtle than that. So it was an interesting article from that perspective, for sure. Yeah, I liked it because it actually had like, this is the value in a dollar sign. Yeah. And this is the value of a star. And, and it was quite different. So mm-hmm. interesting. And you had some articles. So that was from October 31st, the title of the podcast, Managing Toxic Employees. All right. So an article I plucked from our podcast from May 4th earlier this year, Managing Disruptive High Performance in Your Vet Practice. The article is called Managing a Top Performer Who Alienates Their Colleagues. Again, like you said at the top of this section, this is definitely something that we've dealt with before with the practices that we work with is, you know, you have that star performer and they're a star for a reason, you know, they're extremely dedicated, they're high producers if we're talking about a veterinarian, but they don't necessarily have the best self-awareness necessarily. They can be really uncollaborative. They can alienate people. The other folks might respect this person, uh, but they don't like working with them and they don't trust them. And what the article is saying, and I think this is a huge theme that we come up against a lot with when we work with people is that we have to be able to have the backbone to give the tough feedback, you know, and and try and help the person understand the effect that they have on other people, often appealing to sort of what's important to them. So for example, if they're ambitious person, you know, saying to them, you know, in order to fulfill your ambitions, you need to behave differently, or you're not going to get as far as you want to get talking about the need to build relationships and trying to, again, with that self-awareness track, encourage empathy. So making sure that they're sensitive to how other people are reacting to them. Uh, I think that that's all important. And we kind of tend to 
put those stars up at the top of the tree. It's a timely time to say that, or, you know, <laughs> there, there's, some, there's somebody that's, you know, up in the sky and, and they're sort of untouchable. And because they produce so much, we're willing to overlook a lot of crap that they, that they leave in their wake. And I think that we have to take a hard look at the effect that they have. If your superstar is a toxic person, you got a real pickle on your hands. That's for sure. So we just have to realize, especially something that's really important right now when there's such a war for talent going on and it's impossible to find veterinarians and it's impossible to find experienced support staff, you can tend to take, I always call it a desperation hire. You take somebody here like, well, they might not fit in all that great with the culture, but I need somebody and they're a high performer. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring them on without thinking about the ramifications of that three months, six months, you know, a year, two years down the road. So I think really important. And I think it's interesting because I know with practices, you talk to them, we visit them and there are these toxic employees and they may not be even be superstars, but they've been there forever. Yeah. And then there's the sense like if we lose them or if we terminate them, get rid of them, coach them and they leave, what have you, whatever way you want to look at it, it's going to be such a void that nobody can fill. So two things, a, no business should ever have anybody in the business that the business falls apart if one person leaves. So mm-hmm. I think that's just a big weakness in a business because uh, whether it's something that we're doing, but it's just, you know, an act of God, an accident, what have you, you never want to be that vulnerable. But the more telling comment is, is that when we have worked with some practices and we have helped them either coach the person uh, to being a better coworker, or they have left because of changes we've instituted, or the end result of had to fire them, you know, about two weeks later, everybody's like, oh man, this is so much better. Mm-hmm. And there's like, yeah. And, and yes, we, we can survive. And actually we're doing much better without them. And other people are stepping up and one of the themes that we'll come back to a lot today is we talk about the shortage of people or how hard it is to get to people. And I would argue, I don't know if you agree with me, but I would argue we don't necessarily have a vet or staff shortage. Rather, we have a vet or staff retention problem. Mm. And so we're talking about burnout and we're trying to retain staff. And it's like, I hate going to work because there's just one person that just makes my life miserable. And there's probably others within the organization saying the same thing. And so, yes, you may not want to get rid of this person or help them change their behavior, but they're causing your other people to leave, which adds even more work to you trying to run a clinic. So yeah, this, I, I love this article. Absolutely. And I mean, that's a great segue into the next one that I tagged, which was five reasons business owners don't fire bad employees and five bigger reasons why they're wrong. And this is from our uh, episode, Step Up or Move On, on June 2nd. Again, it talks about a lot of the things that you just talked about, uh, you know, those sort of misconceptions around keeping somebody poor, who's, you know, keeping them around. You think that you don't have time to find and train a replacement. Uh, the employee's a nice person. I think this is one too that's that gets overlooked a lot as well. You know, they they might be a really nice person, but they might not be a great fit for your practice. So they're just not doing a good job. Um, but you know, we don't want to fire the nice person. Obviously, we want to avoid conflict, you know, have people who are so terrified of going in the room and actually, you know, firing somebody that they would just keep the poor person around for months or years because they're afraid of that conflict. They have hope, which is not a strategy, but they they hope that performance will improve. And I think sometimes too, we as uh, leaders or as managers, we can feel guilty that we didn't maybe give that person enough support. And definitely see this, this pops to mind when we're doing like three month reviews for new employees. 
uh, you think, oh gosh, well, this person didn't come along as quickly as we thought they would. And it's like, okay, well, let's look at ourselves and did we give them the best chance to be successful possible? And I think that's a kind of an epiphany kind of thing that I've had over the last couple of years. If somebody fails, assuming we've hired properly and we haven't done a desperation hire, we've done our due diligence and we think it's the right person. If they come on and they don't do well, that is at least half our fault, if not more. I can remember examples in the past of, you know, talking about people and like, oh, this person's not great. It's like, well, did we actually work with them on what they're weak at? Like, actually, we didn't. You know, those same people are still working at this certain practices five or six years later. So I think that is really important to make sure that you're offering that support. This article also talked about reasons to fire. Obviously, you know, you talked about those toxic employees, and I think underperformers are much the same. They have a negative impact on revenues. They can harm the company culture. Uh, you know, customers notice and may leave. Obviously, that's a huge, a huge issue in veterinary medicine, especially with um, people's pension to sort of just go online and and trash people when they don't like the the service that they've got. And you know, we can't really reply to that necessarily in a public way. And holding on to a poor performer also it affects everybody else. So everybody else has to sort of pitch in and, and take up the slack. And it's, it can also be uh, unfair to the employee themselves. You know, they might be a round peg in a square hole and they need help to sort of release them from what they're doing and help them figure out what they, they can do that suits them better. So overall, and, and it, it has been difficult this year with people, you know, saying, oh, well, this person's not great, but I can't find anybody else. So I have to keep them around. Uh, you know, the ramifications of that are pretty deep and uh, definitely something we need to think about. So, yeah, I was just thinking as you were mentioning that, you know, I was thinking my own experience as, as a practice owner, and there's been some underperformers, not because they're bad people, whether they're a square peg uh, in a round hole. I always have a lot of time for somebody who, you know, maybe they're not aware that they're not performing to the level we want, and, but they're open to, to get there. Mm-hmm. As long as they're making meaningful change and, and they're progressing, I'm, I'm just, it's so satisfying to have these people and to work with them. And, but then we get to the position where, you know, it's just not working out and, and we have to terminate them. And everybody says, well, you know, it's so hard to fire. It is, it is. It's the worst thing you can do. It's the hardest thing to do as a leader, a manager. What makes it easier, and that's kind of a loaded phrase, it's never easy. But what I guess fortifies me is thinking of all the others that this person is negatively impacting because they're actually having to pick up extra work or you're getting customer complaints, all the good work of others is being tarnished, let's say, that gives you a path that you're not so focused on the one person, but you're doing it on behalf of the other people in your organization. And having this person not part of the organization will help others. So mm-hmm. it's not the same thing. I mean, you're, you know, it's very impactful, of course, to somebody when you're having to fire them. But yeah, I just think of how you're making life better for everybody else. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, you know, we we talk so much about culture and we talk about people being on the bus together, moving in the same direction and asking yourself, is this person contributing to the culture or are they taking away from the culture? Yeah. And really, I mean, honestly, that should be the only question that you really need to ask yourself. Yeah. So yeah, super important. So you had one more in the people management subject. Yeah. The other one that I plucked out was, and this is a really interesting article because it's not something necessarily thought about, you know, more on that topic of the stars and your high performers. 
this is from our podcast, from our dream world to our current reality in veterinary HR from October 26th. And the article is called uh, Stuck in the Middle, the Plight of Average Performers. Again, this article talks about how we're so focused on giving our stars opportunities, so established stars in our practices, our companies that have a, a track record of performing when we need them to. Uh, and we have all of those middle performers as well, who are like the meets expectations employees, they're the seven out of tens. And we often assume that they're not as able to be challenged or they're just not somebody who's ever going to step up. And uh, we sort of assume that that's just a fixed thing and that's how this person's going to be forever. But I thought it was really interesting that they talked about, you know, these other reasons or there's so many other reasons why somebody's not performing as well as they can. You know, one being a, a lacking of confidence. Nobody has ever said to them that they believe in them. You know, I think that that's, that's such a <laughs> kind of a sad thing uh, to realize that that could be a reason why somebody's held back is nobody said, hey, yeah, I think you can do this. I think you can step up. Somebody might not know how to be a star at your company. What is it that that makes somebody a star? And do you have to be buddies with the owners or do you have to sacrifice your work-life balance? Some people just aren't interested in that kind of burnout that they might see associated with a star performer. Somebody who's up at five, goes to sleep at 12, and they're just sort of working all the time. That might not be something that they want. This sort of opens up a bigger discussion for me is the need to help our leaders and help our managers learn how to turn those middle performers into high performers. So not just focusing on finding more stars, but entering into that, checking in and coaching with the middle performers and saying, hey, like, where are you and where do you want to go and how can I help? Instead of just saying, okay, well, it's this person and they're always 75% out of 100 every time we do the review and that's just how they're going to be. It's like, no, let's ask them what they actually want and ask them if there's something that we might be doing that's holding them back or not doing that might be holding them back. But I, I really like this concept of having this untapped resource that we just need to ask about. And again, we've been doing a lot of presentations lately outside of this podcast on performance management. And there's complicated systems that you can put together. But the simplest thing is just having taking five, 10 minutes on our, every couple of months to check in with somebody to say, hey, how's it going? What are you working on? What do you need from me? Where can we go? with you at this company. It's so important. And uh, it's something that we don't spend enough time on. And it's easy to say, oh, well, we've got patients that need to be seen. And are you crazy? I can't take people away. But you have to think your employees are your biggest cost and they're your biggest asset. And we have to put some time into them. Uh, we've definitely worked with practices before where uh, an owner or a manager doesn't believe in meetings. like They don't believe in, in taking time away and investing in employees. And it's just such a backwards way of thinking. And often those are the practices that we see where the culture is fractured or you know, people. there's a, a real disparity between effort and achievement of people. People say, how did you transition from being a vet to a practice owner manager? And I'm like, one of the most satisfying things of being a great manager good manager, great leader, good leader is the positive influence you can have on another person. Mm -hmm. To me, it's similar to having a sick animal and you know, working it and, and going through a plan and having compliant owners and, and turning things around. I mean, that's just nothing beats that. But uh, other than, I want to say nothing other than when you have that average performer that seems to be struggling and just by reaching out to them, finding what motivates them, finding what we're doing that maybe is blocking their efforts and seeing them flourish. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a gift you can do for somebody. Definitely. That to me is 
why I love what I do. Absolutely. I agree with you. And I think often we do, you and I are pretty hip deep in thinking about self-awareness and thinking about self-reflection and all that kind of stuff. And there might be some concepts that are so simple to us, like something like impact doesn't indicate intent, for example, you know, maybe you have somebody who just can't break through and be really confident on the phone because they take everything really personally that a client says and saying them, well, this person might not mean to make you feel that way. And if they do, who cares? And they're like, oh, I don't have to take it personally. This isn't about me. And it seems so simple to you or I, or somebody who's well-versed in, in that kind of compartmentalization or self-awareness, but it could be something as simple as that to help them turn around and be like, oh yeah, actually I don't have to worry about that. And this goes back to the mindfulness thing that we were talking about with um, Dr. Tobe Caldwell just earlier in this podcast, thinking, okay, well, I am not what somebody says about me or you know, how somebody treats me is not an indication of who I am. And I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent here, but we can sometimes overestimate how much knowledge people have about a certain thing and something that, again, something that's so simple to us is it can be hugely challenging for somebody else. So we just can't assume that everybody's like us or everybody thinks the same way. Yeah, fair, fair, fair. So really tied into burnout, people management is, uh, and employee care is our customers. And mm-hmm. this predates the pandemic, but it's exacerbated through the pandemic is customers are not always the nicest people to us, whether it's online griping, slander to people come in and just are abusive, impatient. I mean, we can just give you every reason of how people can could just be horrible to veterinarians and that staff. And so one article we talked about in January 12th, all the way back 11 months ago, the customer is not always right, uh, was an article. And it's out of, uh, it's funny, it's out of not the most likely source that you would have for a veterinary podcast that came out of food and wine magazine. And it talked about the customers always right in terms of restaurants. And they talk about customer entitlement and what have you. And I thought this is so spot on because in most vet practices in my own until very recently, it was like, we do what we can for the customer. Always, always, always. But then you realize there are just some customers that are just horrible human beings in our interactions, they may be like saints and other things they do, but in the interactions with their vet practice, they're not nice people. Mm-hmm. And you start to think about the toll that it has on staff when vets dread an appointment. And I can think of certain employees, vets of ours that have said, whenever I have to deal with this employee, I don't sleep the night before because I just worry about it. Or the clients that are so nice to the vets, but when they call up and you can hear them screaming on the phone, for berating yep. the CSRs, but then they see the vets like, oh, hi, how are you? Mm-hmm. So this article said is, you know what? The customer isn't always right. And this fixation we have on customer service comes at a huge toll to employee staff. And it is time to shift that. And so one of the things that uh, we have been recommending to our clients is, you know what? I think it's time to start selecting those clients that are sucking the life out of your staff. Mm-hmm. And either one of two things, having a chat with that customer to say, you know, there's been some behavior that is inappropriate. And unless you can change that behavior, we can't have you as a client. Or if they have just been like that all the time and there's no hope that they're going to change outright, just saying, you know what? We can't be your vet for you. We're giving you some time to find another vet, but we're done. And I know I, I, we've heard of uh, practice managers saying, oh, our owners won't go for that. 
they have to go for it because the money you think you're making on the client, you're losing so much more because staff are leaving. These clients aren't very profitable. All the stuff that we've been talking about before, burnout and people management, it applies to the customers. And we as vets, we were people pleaser and we want to take care of the animal. And the idea of saying no to clients is just so foreign to us. But yeah. we, if we really want to do what's great for the pets, we got to have the great staff with us that can be there for the pets and the clients that really value what you do. So yeah, a little pruning of the client list. It's the end of the year, maybe a sort of a new year's resolution, mm-hmm. a Christmas gift to some of your staff to say, Oh, <laughs> you know, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. Oh yeah. We're getting rid of the, all the stuff that you do, bonuses, gifts, staff parties, that might be the best thing to know that that person is not in their life anymore. That's so true. And this has its roots in culture and how you live your culture. And whether or not you're a servant leader or not, listening to your staff, if 10 people tell you that this person is a pain in the ass and you're as the owner, like, yeah, but they make us money. It's like, well, thanks a lot for having our back. Yeah. Yeah. It can be so impactful, like you said. Uh, And I will say as a side note, sidebar, this article is pretty horrifying. (laughs) reading about some of the demands that restaurant patrons have of servers, I am, uh, I can definitely see why people don't want to go back to that profession. It's worth reading just for the horror stories. Um, but you know, you know, they talk about how, because going to a restaurant and I, I think vet medicine is absolutely the same, whether you are bringing your pet in or if you're an equine client and it's an ambulatory type situation, people see it as like a transactional type of thing. You know, they don't necessarily see that it's a human being that's tied to, you know, your desires and what you want and and what you feel. And uh, when you stop seeing people as human and stop seeing them as people who have feelings and people who are trying their best, then it's, it's a bad thing. And, you know, it goes back to boundaries and what's appropriate and all that stuff. So really, this was a really interesting article. And I think something, like you said, it's really interesting to see the the reaction of of owners when we say you need to get rid of some of these clients that are causing so much disruption and they're so horrified initially and then they take that step and maybe get rid of a couple of them and they're like oh my gosh it's like a night and day for yeah. how the staff feel yeah. you know it's you know, they're not afraid to pick up the phone because it might be that person like <laughs> it's never a good thing so so yeah really good one so uh my other article, this one really, this I keep on coming back to this article so often, especially with all the news that's going on with minimum wage expectations, compensation for people. So this is not a recent article. This came out in 2018, but this is from a podcast we did on June 15th, Rethinking Compensation is the title of the podcast. This article is called How Poverty Changes Your Mindset. And this article was done at the uh, University of Chicago Business School. And what I can say is the University of Chicago Business School is probably one of the most fiscally conservative-leaning business schools. I mean, there's always a talk about economists come from the school of Chicago, and it's just very, very conservative. But what this talked about in summary, and again, read the article because this blew my mind, is... When people are in financial distress, when people are really, there's a toll of of poverty, basically, and bad decisions beget bad decisions. And what it uh, says is that they have data that says there's a, a cognitive toll of being poor that leads to bad decisions. 
to the point where they say it's equivalent to a 13 point deficit in IQ or a full night's sleep lost that when we start looking at our practices or businesses and we're paying people such that they can't live in society, we're not getting the best out of them because they're tired, they're fatigued, the stresses of finances are making them lead bad decisions there. I mean, and again, it's a vicious cycle. And this really upset me because we expect a lot out of people, yet we don't pay them well. And something, especially some of the entry-level positions in a lot of practices. Mm-hmm. And yet we then we sort of like, well, none of these, they don't want to work. They're sick. They don't show up. And I'm like, we're sort of perpetuating this trap they're in. On the other side, they say that even people who are of of means wealthy when they're in financial stress for whatever reason, investments go wrong or what have you, they have that same kind of cognitive decline or decrease in IQ. You know, it's two extremes. And so it really made us think about our bare minimum of pay. And what we try to in my own practice is trying to do or, or reach a living wage that a person of their, whether it's a single person, a single person of children or married what have you, that this is enough for them to have an apartment, afford food, you know, have a little left over. And it's something that uh, we have been really cognitive of, like, let's try to get there. And it's hard because of the pricing structure of vet medicine. Mm-hmm. We're not as profitable as a lot of people like to think we are. Or as practice owners, we are used to a certain level of profit and the fact that we might have to give up some profitability to pay our people more. Uh, it's not, it's never been like that. Why should I have to do that? Well, I think we need, if we want to get the best out of people, we, we got to take the salary aspect off the table and make sure they know that they're making enough. Yeah. And I think a sidebar to that is when was the last time you raised your fees? <laughs> I think, you know, that's something that we uh, have worked on with a couple of the folks that we work with this year who hadn't necessarily changed prices in an organized way or in like multiple years. And you sort of always think, all oh, the clients, there's going to be this outcry and people are going to be up in arms and with torches and A, that doesn't usually happen. And, and I mean, if it does, you just explain to them that the costs are going up, but the effect that it has on the bottom line and then your ability to, I think it also shows like how much you value your employees work as well. You know, like we believe that this is what this is worth whether or not we think the clients are going to like it or not, this is what it's going to cost. So I think that that's something to keep in mind as well uh, for practices who think, oh my gosh, I just can't afford it. It's like, okay, well, yeah. When was the last time you raised your prices? All right. On to the last section. And uh, we're talking about how to be a better leader because without great leadership, all the stuff that we just talked about is boot. Totally. Yeah. So the first article that stuck out for me, uh, I think this is one of my favorite articles from the entire year, was from our episode, Managing a Toxic Boss, which is from September 28th. And the name of the article is How to Tell Leaders They're Not as Great as They Think They Are. It's a really good, super article. Another one at HBR, Harvard Business Review. It talks about how often a toxic leader, uh, a poor leader, Uh, can have overconfidence in their personal ability and how that can be, the ramifications of that can be very damaging to teams or organizations. So whether somebody's super confident, they're like, yeah, I'm going to make this business decision and it's going to go really well and doesn't pan out like they thought it would. And then the staff have to pay the price for it, whether it's scrambling to start a new profit center or whatever the case may be, it can be really damaging to teams and to organizations long-term to have somebody overconfident at the helm. The biggest thing is, I mean, 
it's the leader. How do you tell them that they suck? <laughs> it's really hard. So, and I think it was really interesting because this is sort of along the same lines as talking to your star performers who are disruptive, tapping into their motives and values. If somebody values power uh, and saying, you know, if you change these things, you'll be able to outperform your competitors and make it to the top, you know, really trying to figure out what makes them tick. And I think that's like a little more esoteric than something as blatant as data. So whether it's an employee engagement survey where, you know, we've uncovered some quality feedback about leaders or leaders uh, being willing to go through a 360 degree review or some kind of anonymous feedback or something like that. Uh, I think that the data is something that's so invaluable and especially something like an employee engagement survey. Uh, it really can gauge how your leadership style is influencing so many different factors uh, around how people feel about their jobs and how dedicated they are to the, the company. And I think the pickle, and it's something that we've seen before, definitely, is that it can be difficult because some leaders, when they get poor feedback, they just don't believe it or they don't mm. think it's valuable. They're like, well, I don't think that it, it really happened or you fabricated it or people have a personal vendetta or it's just wrong. And unfortunately, those types of people, you know, we've seen it go both ways. We've seen people who have said that and then you sort of you go a little bit deeper with them or, you know, get them into coaching or something like that so they can get a little bit more perspective on how they influence people. But we also have those people who no matter what, they're going to dig in their heels and they're going to say, no, I don't I'm not valuing any of this feedback. And obviously you must have some like ulterior motive. And I'm like, what would that be? Uh, but anyway, it can be really difficult uh, when the leader isn't willing to look in the mirror and see themselves how their employees see them. And this underlines the need, especially when we're thinking about in vet med, thinking about promoting people to a management position or a supervisor position, uh, you know, just because they've been there for 15 years and they're uh, amazing at their job. Uh, we need to do a little bit more due diligence, even if we're hiring from outside. And like the old uh, hackneyed interview question, you know, like, what's your greatest weakness? I think that, you know, we kind of have gone away from that question, but it's really, it's really to see how self-aware this person is. What are their insecurities? What are their self-doubts? Are they willing to talk about them in an interview or in self-reflection at a review or as part of a 306 or something like that? Just so important to make sure that we have those people and and they are willing to look in the mirror to some extent. So that is such the limiting factor mm -hmm. of any kind of positive change in a practice is when the owners, and I'm going to go on a limb there is when their egos get in the way yeah. of what's good for the, the practice. And it's their, their egos will not tolerate them not being who they thought they are. Like it's, there's no sense even pursuing it anymore. It's like, Unless that owner has to really, you know, want to look in the mirror and go, I am contributing to some of this, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. So I know when I was doing my MBA, one of the first things we did in our leadership course was do a, a 360 degree evaluation with close colleagues. And we all go into them thinking, oh, it's going to be like this, this, and that. But to get that kind of feedback and to see what people really thought about, and it was anonymous, was like, if you're going to ignore it, you should not be a business leader. You should just sell your shares in your company and just say, I'm not ready to be a leader because if you can't accept it and know that your behavior influences other people in positive and negative ways, that's, it's tough. Yeah, it, really, it is. It's just such a, such a razor's edge of opportunity of yeah. 
if I listen and I make changes, the payoff can be life-changing. And I get really like, I'm on my soapbox about this so much, you know, it's, it's super uncomfortable to hear what we're not good at, but I mean, how else are you supposed to grow? And this is, again, this goes back to self-awareness. This goes back to emotional intelligence. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at this by any means, but just sort of like squinting and holding the paper far away from yourself and saying, okay, well, what do they think and what can I do about it? And again, it's that it's, it links back to that mindfulness. This feedback isn't me. This feedback is how I'm appearing to other people and how can I tweak that? Or how can I change how I'm thinking and what do I need to do? And that's, that's why you and I, and, and the other folks that we work with, we refer so much, so many people to um, Sue Armstrong, who's our wonderful executive coach is like, we need to help these people make major realizations about themselves and the opportunities that open up for somebody once they can get out of their own way. It's just so astounding. Oh yeah. We can pretty much achieve anything we want if we put our mind to it and we do it and we believe. And, you know, having somebody who's a leader who's willing to take that step to step off the cliff to some extent, it's so wonderful to work with those people to see the transformations that can happen. And again, like you said, that's, I think the best part. It's why I do HR is for those transformations. But again, when you don't have that person, you don't have somebody who's willing to listen to it and willing to act on it. It's so disheartening because you know, nothing can change. Stepping off my soapbox. Uh, so the last article here that we'll chat about is, uh, from our episode, why people don't give honest feedback from June 29th. And this is another HBR article called how to encourage candid employee feedback, 14 tips for CEOs. I'm not going to go through all 14. The big thing that sticks out for me, stuck out for me from this article, and it's definitely worth reading the whole thing. And it's something that comes up so often for you and I, when we do employee engagement surveys is that. People are afraid to give feedback and, you know, they fear repercussions. They fear long-term career consequences for themselves. Uh, It can be really hard to get up the gumption to give feedback about you as a leader or about the company or about how you're doing things. The communication portion of our employee engagement surveys are so telling. And often, you know, one or two questions can tell us all we need to know about a practice Again, going along with those leaders who are willing to take feedback and willing to look inside, there are ways that you can make it more comfortable. I mean, you could be the most open and like, hey, give me the feedback, give me the feedback. But if you don't create an environment where people are comfortable doing it, then what's the point? I mean, you know, you can say, I have an open door, I have an open door. But if there's sharks in a moat outside your door, they're not going to come in. So the article talks about thinking about giving people different ways or multiple ways to be vocal. So whether it's surveys like the employee engagement survey or a quick pulse survey, whether it's um, feedback that they give about you or your management in 360 degree reviews, setting an example by embedding it in your culture. So demonstrating that you are going to think before you react, you know, often people won't bring something up. So like, Oh, this is going to upset the owner of the practice and they're going to hate me. So, um, or they're going to fly off the handle if I bring this up. So people are walking on eggshells thinking about like, okay, I'm going to think before I react, I'm going to gather my thoughts and then I'm going to go forward. You don't have to talk about it right away. And I think also just creating conditions that encourage trust. And part of that goes back to checking in with people, even as the leader of the practice, even if you don't work with the kennel attendants every day, you should still be establishing some kind of a professional relationship with them so that they would be comfortable coming to you and saying, Hey, there's just like, 
what if we try, you know, this plan for blankets in the kennels instead of that, then, you know, that could be something that could be really helpful, but if they don't trust you to take that feedback, then what's the point? So I think also being that self-aware, being that open book and also admitting your challenges that you have as a leader as well is something that can help build that trust. We've seen situations where trust is such a, such a, like a thread and it's really, really easily broken. Even if you've been working to like knit a sweater together, it's something that can be broken so easily with one careless act on a a word or a phrase or a meeting that didn't go well, it can be so damaging. So, uh, you know, learning how to encourage feedback and also learning how to receive feedback appropriately is so important for managers and owners. Yeah. Spot on. Nope. I, I have nothing to add. That's uh, as I said earlier, you as the owner have to be vulnerable and you've got to make that welcoming environment. So yeah. Yeah. yeah it's funny. Some of those articles, like, you know, the ones from January and all that, but as soon as we start talking about, I remember those articles vividly. So that was, that was interesting. So, Hey, it's our 2021 wins and fails. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, I can go first. Okay. So, cause my win and fail are the flip sides of the same thing. Gotcha. And that is the, uh, I would say the disruption turmoil in the labor market. And I can speak particularly about North America, but just the, the, the vets, the general economy, but what we're seeing in the vet profession too, is this awareness it's horrible that we're in a place where vets are burning out, staff are leaving, that we have this crisis in the vet profession. That's the fail. The win is that we are having an appreciation, a realization that we do need to do better. And so that bodes well for 2022 and beyond. I think we're realizing that we do need to take better care of our staff. We need to compensate them better. We need to manage them better. To resolve burnout is within our control as Patris leaders and owners, managers, all the things that we've been talking about, compensation, people management, uh, toxic employees, we have control and there are things that we can do to better it. As an aside to that, this movement about better labor practices, I'm an avid fan of Reddit. And over the last couple of months, I've started... I'm a member of this one community called Anti-Work. And it's just people who share horrible things that have happened on the job. So even as we're aware, it's been in the news that people are underpaid and that people are not going to work at jobs, not because they don't want to work, it's because the work environment is horrible. You gave the example of restaurant workers. And people still have examples of bad things that bosses do. And so what they're doing is uh, Kellogg, uh, which makes me sad because I like cereal, got to a point where they uh, their union, 1,300 members uh, refused a contract. And so Kellogg basically said, well, forget you. We're just going to hire new ones. You're gone. And so this Reddit anti-work mob sort of fought back. And a lot of them are very young. A lot of them are programmers and basically flooded their online portal for job applications with basically spam. And so what happened now is uh, Kellogg's has gone back to the employees and say, all right, we're going to sort of accept your demands. And so uh, it's, I mean, it's still early days on that, but it's, it, it shows that there is a movement developing and some of the stuff is going to get beyond our control. So as vet practice owners, as much as we hate seeing uh, clients, for the most part, unjustifiably get online and just slander us, the power of the mob Unfortunately, and this may be a fail, 
is also driving behavior. So I think we need to, everything we do is so transparent now. We've got to be so uh, on point on how we manage our employees. So this, as I said, it's not a new hiring people problem. It's retaining problem. So that's my win and fail. Mm, I like it. Okay. So my fail and win, because I want to finish on a high note, are also two sides of the same coin. So, I mean, as anybody who has been awake over the last couple of years knows, the Me Too movement has been uh, a tour de force, uh, really exposing some of the treatments that uh, particularly female human beings receive, whether it's systemic discrimination, outright discrimination, just there's a need to challenge sort of the way that things have always been done. And for me, the biggest fail uh, that I came across this year was the approval of this class action lawsuit claiming that the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police up here in Canada, uh, is basically police force that is used all across the, the country. It's you know not in every place, but it's sort of the, the fed- federal police force. Basically, the they had designated doctors that recruits or hopefuls had to go to in order to get, you know, physical exams before they could be hired, or they went to them after they were already hired. The long and short of it is there were a number of doctors who were well known for sexually assaulting recruits. And, you know, it happened during mandatory physical exams, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you might say to yourself, well, okay, but those are they're RCMP designated doctors. They're not necessarily employed by the RCMP, but the RCMP knew about it and didn't do anything about it. Whether it was they failed to act on allegations, they interfered with actively with investigations, they failed to act on known issues and people, covered up complaints, even condoned the behavior to the point where one of the doctors was famously known for saying, uh, I have the, the last say in whether or not you're going to get the job or not, so you better just do what I tell you. And it's men and women, you know, wasn't just women. Uh, and these doctors were well known amongst the recruit pool. You know, some of them had uh, nicknames like Dr. Fingers, like gross. So anyway, I, I recall my dad is a retired law enforcement officer and he would always say, you know, we have, um, I'm going off on a major tangent, but at the RCMP, people actually around the world might know them for the Mounties, for the musical rides. So the, the Mounties that are riding horses doing coordinated uh, routines and stuff like that. And I was always, as a horse person, a kid, I was always like, oh, that'd be like a dream job. My dad always said, the RCMP is a rotten place for women to work. And this is like 30 years ago. So this is something that's been around forever in the RCMP. The fact that this class action lawsuit has to be launched to um, hold the RCMP accountable for what they didn't do is a major fail. Uh, But I mean, giving hope that perhaps that this could sort of change the tide a little bit of that systemic discrimination that happens in the RCMP in Canada and elsewhere in the world too, people are being held accountable. High ranking people are being held accountable for their behavior and for the behavior that they've let happen. While obviously the reasons that that's happening is a fail, I think it is still a win that people are stepping forward and being held accountable. That's not my major win. So the flip side My favorite positive story from the year uh, was about the CEO of the company Nixware. So they sell women's lingerie, underwear, all that sort of stuff. And sort of 
not like the Victoria's Secret side where it's all lacy. It's more of the like, this is for real women. So the CEO was raising funds or looking to raise funds from venture capitalists for the next phase of expansion. You know, like she'd gone from as a CEO, 2019, she had $50 million in sales. 2020, she had 75 million. It was just going up and up. She was pregnant with twins at the time of uh, the call to these venture capitalists. And the one ground rule that she had was that if people raised her pregnancy and her parenthood as a concern, then she was going to automatically disqualify them from the possible pool of uh, investors. She was basically said, like, my results speak for themselves. And if they don't understand who I am as a mother and a CEO, then they don't understand the mission of this company. And we don't want to have anything to do with them. You know, that's a win as far as, okay, well, we're not just going to take the money because it's out there, but she was really, really living her mission and living her values for herself and for her employees. Uh, and I think that was a major win this year. That's a good one. On that high note, let's, uh, let's say goodbye. Katie, have a fantastic holiday. You as well. Goodbye just till next year, not forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We are going to have a surprise episode the first week of January. So uh, uh, listen in then. But I uh, want to thank everybody who listened uh, throughout the year. The feedback we get from people uh, from random sources, people who are listening is really encouraging. We're seeing the downloads and viewership increase uh, throughout the year. So that's really uh, makes us think that we're, we're doing the right thing and our message is resonating with the veterinary audience. So thank you and wish everybody a happy and safe holiday season until the new year. Take care. Thank you for listening to Hire the Smile, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Our goal at Oculus is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. This episode was produced and edited by Heather McPherson. Special thanks to Alyssa Rubenstein for doing the amazing marketing that she does for Oculus. You can see what we are up to by checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and our website, oculusinsights.net. If you think you could use a business advisor or performance coach, go to advicebyoculus.com. See you next time.